0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We just prayed, and now we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 at the very end of the chapter. So grab your Bibles, chapter 16. Um, Quick review, where we are in the life of Jesus Christ is he's around about a year away from the cross. He's been ministering for a few years. The apostles have seen tremendous miracles, and they've grown, but they still have a long way to go, as do all of us. Um, Jesus has been formally rejected by the religious leaders of Judaism. And as a result, he is in Gentile territory. He's in Caesarea Philippi. We said this is a city in northern Israel where there was a plethora of um, pagan temples, as many as 14 to all the different pagan gods and you could go god shopping if you will small g there and pick the one that you like the best it's there that he chooses to ask the question and we're going to be in in verse 26 of chapter 16 but i want to review and look at 15 to 17 and then 21 to 23 so that i know that you're awake say amen. Amen. Very good. All right. Matthew 16, I want you to look at verse uh, 15. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? We've been saying for two weeks now, this is the question. It's the question that will keep somebody out of heaven or get somebody allowed into heaven. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is, the, is he the God of the universe, the Lord and Savior? Who is Jesus? We said last week there's a thousand wrong answers. A great teacher, an avatar, a miracle worker. Now some of those things might be true, but that's not the totality of who and what he is. So he asks the question of the apostles, who do you say that I am? Look at verse uh, 16. Simon Peter, answered, you are the Christ. That's the word for Messiah in Greek, Christos. Same as Mashiach in Hebrew, it means Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. And then he adds the Son of the living God. Jesus agrees 100% and gives him an A+. plus. As you see, blessed are you, wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. S- supernaturally, God showed Peter who Jesus really is. Jesus basically says, Correct a mundo. You're right. That's who I am. But talk is cheap. So in chapter 17, we're going to see it and hear it that what was just said is exactly right. The other thing I want you to see in chapter 16, before we move to uh, the verse we're going to start with is 25, 26, is look at verse 21. Before we do even go there, what we just had was tremendous glory. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Tremendous glory. Glory. But here comes the suffering, which actually precedes the glory. That's a theme that's going to keep recurring in these next few chapters. From that time on, verse 21 of chapter 16, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. That's the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. And that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Almost every time he tells them that he's going to be killed, he mentions, and I'll be resurrected on the third day, raised to life. So Peter completely disagrees with them in verse 22. Do you see that? Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter, who got an A earlier, is about to get an F. Verse 23 Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The word means adversary. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. God's will is that Jesus has to go to the cross. Suffering precedes glory. So I wanted to go through those things briefly with you. Now look at verse 25. Um, well, let's pick up 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple has to do a few things. Do you see that? Deny them, deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. We covered that last week. Cross is an instrument of death. Death of your old self. Deny yourself. Say yes to God and no to your own will and mine. Take up their cross. And then the third thing, follow me there's the lordship of Christ. For whoever, verse 25, wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. this is what's known in literature as a paradox. In order to save your life, you have to lose it. In culture, especially Western culture, somebody that is saving their life is somebody that, is working hard, earning a lot of money, and that's their focus. I want status, I want money, I want power, I want fame, all the things that the world values. I want people to, I want the cameras to go to me in the owner's box when a touchdown is scored on the Kansas City Chiefs. Don't get me started there. But anyway, um, this is a paradox. It's Jesus is really saying you'll never live until you first walk to your death with me, because that's what a cross is, an instrument of death. The person carrying the cross knows I can't save myself. I am here to die. It's a paradox because the more we die to ourselves, the more we're truly living. The people that live this way are the happiest, most joyful, fulfilled people on planet earth. So it's a paradox. Look at verse 26. Mm, 4. What, will it, uh, what, sorry, what good will it be for someone to, ch- to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So again, it's, it's another paradox. But what he's saying is, he's mentioning the absolute folly and foolishness of spending your life having it be all about the physical world, material goods, earning money, keeping up with the Joneses, all of that. So he uses an extreme example. Look at verse 26. What good will it be for someone to what? Gain not a million dollars, not a hundred million, not 50 billion. I believe the richest man in the world is still um, the Tesla guy, right? Elon Musk. Um, the Amazon guy is up there as well. Um, there, There are others. He's saying, what if somebody could gain all the wealth in the world, gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Well, you say, that's a lot of wealth. That's a lot of goods you could gain. What's the difference? By the way, the word soul is the word psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. Sounds like psychology, and it means soul. And In the Bible, it means the whole person, the immaterial part of you, the software, if you will. The hardware is your physical body. And there's also the spirit, body, soul, spirit. Um, he's saying, even if you could gain the whole world, that and you make that your goal, you've lost big time. The answer as to why is because you can't take it with you. All the wealth in the world can't keep you alive forever and you're gonna leave it behind. As we always say, when there's a hearse with a dead body in it, there's never a trailer with the guy's stuff behind him. The pharaohs in Egypt tried to do that and bury the kings with gold and what have you. And you know what? Grave robbers stole the gold because you can't take it with you. All human riches and status and all power is all temporary, the soul, lives on either in heaven or in hell. So what he's going to say here is that that person, when the time comes, and I don't know whether Elon Musk is a believer or not, or any of the other Bill Gates or any of those other people. I don't think they are, but maybe they are. But the point is, if they're not, and they get to the pearly gates to God, not to Peter, he's not at the pearly gates checking people in. It's God himself. Uh, Jesus says, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You can't buy your way in. I'm a very powerful, wealthy man. In heaven, all that stuff means nothing. It's what did you do with Jesus? Who was he to you? Just a great teacher? Nothing at all? Anything less than my Lord and Savior, the Son of God? Son of the living God, the Messiah. The only reason I can be admitted to heaven is because he paid for my sins on the cross. And I wear his righteousness, a foreign righteousness, not my own. They, the, that person, the unsaved believer, at, uh, unbeliever at judgment, has no currency to buy his soul back. Kind of an amazing thing. I think it's ironic that God mentions that heaven has, you've read this, right? Streets paved with gold. The thing people consider so valuable on planet earth, you get there and and they say, oh, yeah, that's all over the roads. We just pave roads with that stuff. It's meaningless here. Pretty amazing. Um, So there's no currency that a person can use once they die. It is, what did you do with Jesus Christ? So, what shall anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, there's nothing, right? We can't pay. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Okay, Son of Man, we always say is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It comes from Daniel, uh, chapter 7, verse 13, where the Messiah, the Son of Man, it's an ironic title because he's God of the universe, and he's become a son of human being. Uh, he is the Son of Man, the Son of Man, capital S, representative of all mankind. He is in Romans, the second Adam. Um So let me go back to that verse. For the son of man, he's talking about himself, is going to come. And by the way, when you hear this, ask yourself, could any mortal, normal human being say this? Look at it. Son of man is going to come in his father's glory. That's God's own glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Only God could say that, God in human flesh. Jesus Christ is predicting in verse 27 his second coming, that he's going to come in his Father's glory. Now, that's an interesting phrase. And I'm going to come back in the glory of God. An Orthodox Jew would recognize immediately that that is blasphemy, because God says in the Old Testament, I am God alone, there is no other, and I, God the Father, will not share my glory with another person, with anyone, unless Jesus is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and obviously he is. He's going to come... uh, in his Father's glory, with his angels. Angels assist, by the way, in the rapture, in judgment, uh, in all of the above when he the second coming happens, uh, Revelation 19. And then he will reward each person. He's talking about himself, remember, son of man, third person. And then he, he means I, will we reward each person according to what they have done. Some translations have according to their Deeds. If that sounds to you like works salvation, it's not. Well, is anyone judged according to their deeds? Yes. Well, that's a contradiction. No. Unbelievers are are judged according to their deeds. In chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, books are open, and every single person has their name written in the book. And listed in the book, it's sort of your Police record, if you will, right? You ever heard the saying, He's got a police record a mile long, right? Everything that they have ever done wrong, sinful, every selfish thing, every godless thing, every sin is recorded in heaven. That's a little scary, isn't it? Unbelievers are judged according to what they have done. But the overarching sin that they're judged on is this Jesus Christ, no thanks. No, I don't believe he's my Lord. He's not my Savior. I don't go by his rules. I did it my way. Frank Sinatra theology. People that live that way seem to get away with it on on earth, don't they? There's some really wealthy, healthy, powerful sinner types. Nobody gets away with it. Everyone's judged according to their deeds that doesn't believe in Jesus. What does it say in that book under your name? All the sins are blotted out. All of them, past, present, future, because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. He paid for them on the cross. It would be unjust for God to punish you for things that have already been laid on the Lord Jesus. Under your name and mine, it says, sins paid for, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. It's an amazing thing. But Jesus here is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of Man, messianic title, who's going to come again in the glory of God with angels. He'll reward every person according to what they have done. The primary meaning of the reward thing is not positive. The primary meaning is Romans. The wages, listen, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The primary meaning here is, I will pay back every single one, but it looked like they got away with it. No one got away with it, and the Bible teaches varying degrees of punishment in hell, as it also teaches varying degrees of reward in heaven. The secondary meaning is for you and I, there are rewards in heaven. In the book of Revelation, there are believers receiving crowns, rewards in heaven. And if you've read the passage, you know, they take them off and lay them at the feet of Jesus because I would have never done anything for the kingdom of God on my own. Everything I did prior to becoming a Christian was for my aggrandizement, not God's glory. So there will be rewards. He's claiming to be the intersection between heaven and earth, whereby there's no other name. Peter says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. He's claiming to be the door to heaven. In fact, he says so in the gospel of John. In order to get to heaven, you have to know somebody to get in. It's who you know. Go to the Super Bowl and try to get in. If you don't know somebody, you're not getting in. But if you know the owner of the 49ers and you call him on his cell phone and you know him well, he'd probably say, oh, come on up. I'll I'll send word down that you can come in. Who do you know in heaven? Jesus Christ your Savior who died for you. He changes you from the inside out. The Bible says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's what we do when we do good works. Um, let's see. But for the ungodly, he's coming back to bring punishment, payment for their sin. Um, okay, so the, the, he has just said a little while ago, I'm going to the cross to die, and I'll rise on the third day. Now he's tying that in with the fact, all judgment has been given to me. When I return, that's when the judgment happens. Verse 27. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You say, what on earth is that? that saying appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels are what's called the synoptics. They sort of go together in the story. Sometimes Matthew gives more detail than Mark does. Sometimes Luke gives some other detail, but they sort of go parallel in a parallel fashion. John writes much later and writes to fill in the gaps and tell you what he remembers. In the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, when that statement appears. Some of people that are standing here with me, meaning the 12 apostles, some of them, not all, won't die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, coming in that glory he just mentioned. What glory? The glory of God the Father. What's he talking about? I see some of the mouths moving. Transfiguration. Very good. The transfiguration... Is what happens in chapter 17. It appears in Mark and in Luke as well. It is a unique event. It only happens one time on planet Earth where Jesus shows them who he really is. In chapter 16, he just says, Yes, Peter, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. He explains he's going to be crucified and raised from the dead. He explains that he's going to come again and judge the world. But In 17, we actually see a preview. We, the reader, see it along with just three of the disciples, the inner circle of his disciples, Peter and the brothers, James and John. The three of them were partners in a fishing business owned by Zebedee, the father of James and John. So we're leading up to the transfiguration, which is One of my favorite parts of the Bible, I have to to admit. Okay, so that's why he's saying some are standing here, aren't going to taste death before they're going to get a little sneak preview of the coming attractions. Let's go to chapter 17. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, I forgot to ask you, are you awake? Okay, there's my sign. Amen from Zoom land. I see people waving. All right. Chapter 17 is a roller coaster. It's going to begin with what we call in spiritual terms, church language, a mountaintop experience. You ever have one of those with the Lord where you're just, wow, so awesome. What often comes afterwards is the roller coaster goes down and you come back down to earth, so to speak, and there's some pain or suffering or bummer or Persecution or conflict in some way, some great need. It starts with a mountaintop experience. And what follows is dealing with a demon-possessed boy, the worst one Jesus encounters, who the other nine apostles could not cast the demon out. And Jesus is going to be so disappointed, I'll show you. After that, Jesus pays his taxes. You see what I mean? The mountaintop experience, and he sends Peter to go fish for one fish. What a contrast. So I want you to see both of those, um, but we're going to see visibly and hear audibly that what Peter said is right. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. Uh, We already talked about that. Verse 1, chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So they're just, come with me, boys. Where are we going? Just come with me. The other nine stay behind. These three, Peter, James, and John, are the leaders of the 12 apostles. Okay? Most people think because they were the most astute spiritually, they understood the most, they had the most faith. It may be that he took these three up because they needed it more than the other nine. Who knows? But the point is, he only takes three of them. That's the ones he's mentioning in the previous verse. Some of you standing here aren't going to taste death till you see a little preview of the glory I just talked about. So he takes the three of them up. It's interesting, he singles them out, elsewhere. When he raises the daughter of Jairus, remember she died and he's going to raise her up. He lets the parents come in the bedroom. Peter, James, John, everybody else stay out. Closes the door, raises Jairus's daughter, Peter, James, and John. In the garden of Gethsemane, he singles those same three out and they go with him a little further And he tells them to pray, and they're so tired they fall asleep. And here you say, Well, that's nice information. What do those three things have in common? Death, all three. Jairus's daughter is dead, he raises her to life, indicating he has power over death. What's the second one? The Garden of Gethsemane. Why is Jesus? sweating drops of blood, praying earnestly to his father, take this cup for me. If there's any other way to save mankind without the suffering he's foreseeing, please do it. What's that have to do with his own sacrificial death? What does this one have to do with? I'll show you. Most people don't catch it. The transfiguration has to do with death. Because I'll show you it's the subject of conversation. Let's dive in, shall we? By the way, uh, oh no, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's move to verse two. Um, Okay, so we're up on a high mountain. By the way, traditionally, people say Mount Tabor or Tabor, T-A-B-O-R, is the location. It's a 1900, we live in the mountains. That's like, come on, that's not a mountain. A 1900 foot hill. But Josephus, the Roman historian who's Jewish, writes that at that time, there was a walled fortress at the top of that mountain. Can't be there. You say, well, where do you think it is? Most scholars think Mount Hermon. How many have heard of Mount Hermon? It's a place in Santa Cruz, too. Anyway, it's close to Caesarea Philippi. Get this. It's 9,200 Feet up. This is a serious mountain climb, right? Maybe several days, probably, right? I don't know if they went to the very top, but they're way up on a mountain. Why is that? Stuff happens on mountains in the Bible, doesn't it? Moses gets the Ten Commandments on a mountain. Elijah has an encounter with God on a mountain. All kinds of things happen on mountains. So there they go, up the mountain. Peter, James, John, Jesus. Verse 2. There, where? Up on a high mountain. He, that's Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so go back to verse 2. There he was transformed. The word is metamorpho. It's a Greek word. It means changed in form, transformed. He looked totally different. I'm going to ask the question. You don't have to answer, but just listen. Is this a miracle or not? The answer might surprise you. Okay, this is the only time his glory is revealed this way in the Bible on earth. However, you and I are going to see him even more glorious than this one day. So, uh, metamorpho yeah, from which we get the word metamorphosis. He becomes, look at the verse again, transfigured, his face shone like the sun. Now you say, wait, Moses saw God uh, when he got the Ten Commandments or was with God, and his face was glowing. Do you remember that? Moses was reflecting the glory of God, much like the moon reflects the light of the sun. This light is not reflective light. It's coming from within. Again, I ask the question, well, then isn't this a miracle? All of a sudden, it's like he's saying, watch this, and he changes. Or does he? There he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun. This is a picture of the the three guys doing this, like you can't look, right? Most of you know, and don't try this at home, but if you're outside at noon and without sunglasses or protective lenses, if you stare at the sun without blinking for long enough, what happens, class? You go blind. It's just too bright. You just know, even as a kid, I can't look at that. You get a sense of it. That's how bright Matthew wants you to know. That's how bright his face was. His clothes became white as the light. It literally in Greek is white as light. I don't know how else to say it. Light itself. So he's glowing from head to toe with light. You got the picture? There's no words spoken that we know of so far. He just, it just starts happening. Mark, uh, no, I think it's Luke tells us, I have it somewhere, um, that the the guys, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, James, and John, guess what they were doing? Sleeping. They're always sleeping. I don't know if it's the, maybe the, the air is thin up there, right? You ever been to Denver, Mile High City? It's a mile up. The air is thin there. If you play sports there, it's different than if you play down in the lower elevations. What they're seeing is not a miracle. Seems like a miracle, not a miracle. The miracle was the previous two plus years when that glory that was always there was veiled. He's just giving them a peek of who He really is. What this is going to confirm is what Peter said. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to get visual confirmation and auditory, meaning you're going to hear it from God Himself before we're done. We're also going to get scriptural uh, proof from uh, Moses and Elijah, we find out here. So, uh, Let's see. Do we want to go there now? No, not yet. This is not a new miracle. It's a temporary ceasing or stopping of the miracle of him being veiled. When you were growing up, did you ever watch TV show or movies, Superman? Okay. Don't worry. I'm not going to blaspheme. And Superman's the same as Jesus. No, he's not. But if you watch the story of Superman, okay, and it's I I believed it as a kid, you know, you're watching. Oh, that's cool. It's kind of ridiculous because his costume is black rim glasses and a suit and Lois Lane and (laughs) Jimmy Olsen. Just don't go, wait a minute. Super. Have we ever seen Clark and Superman together? He looks a lot like Superman except for the glasses, right? It's almost like Superman. And if you watch the show, you know, at least in the TV show, he never tells them, I'm Superman. But imagine if Clark Kent undid his tie, always had the tie with the suit and the black and the white shirt, right? And he went like this. And they saw the big S there for Superman. Jesus is, in a way, showing them, see the S, Savior it's me. This is who I really am. But it's not just, oh, look at the S. It's so bright. They know this is supernatural brightness. In the Old Testament, God appeared as a pillar of cloud, okay, during the day and a pillar of fire or light at night. Now, that light, the presence of God, that cloud is called the Shekinah glory. This is the Shekinah glory. Listen, it's not coming from a cloud. It's coming from a human being or what they thought was just a human being. You're saying he's not human. No, I'm saying he's both. Fully God, fully man. Not 50% God, 50% man. 100% God who takes on an additional nature of 100% human being. This guy that they had hung out with for a few years who ate with them, slept next to them outside usually, and had all the human stuff happen to him. He scratched his arm and bled a little and got tired and is suddenly showing them, Peter, you're right. I'm the son of the living God. Let me show you. Now, it's true that the Old Testament says, no man, no human being, shall see God in his totality of his being and live. It's too awesome in our sinful nature. Isaiah in the Old Testament gets a glimpse of God in heaven, a vision, and he high fives God and he, do- no, he doesn't. He falls on his face and says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a bunch of unclean people. I'm ruined. You're so holy. It's so awesome. I can't even handle it. They get just a very small glimpse. Believe me, he's brighter than this in his totality, but it's been veiled all this time. The miracle is that he took on this humble human body uh, and was veiled in that pre incarnate glory. Pre incarnate means before he got into flesh carne in Latin is flesh. Pre-incarnate means Jesus existed before Bethlehem for a trillion years times a trillion years. He always existed with the Father, John one. 1. This vision, um, I want you to, now we're going to take two detours. Go to uh, John one fourteen, Gospel of John, so f- three books to the right. John chapter 1. I just want you to see this and then you say, well, I want to get back to the vision. I know I do too, but I want you to notice this had a profound effect on these dudes. John in chapter 1 talks about the Word in the beginning. Was the Word? The Word was with God. The Word was God. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. God became a human being, Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. That word, by the way, it's going to come back in a second. I'll tell you now. He made his dwelling, English. Greek, it says literally, he tabernacled among us. Keep reading. We have seen his glory. John means Peter, me, and my brother, James. We've seen his glory. What kind of glory are you talking, John? the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth now go to the toward the back of the bible to first peter easiest way is go to revelation take a left and go back uh, actually second peter my mistake second peter chapter 1 about 5 books before revelation and there's short books there second peter chapter 1 verse 6 I hope I'm right. Mm, 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 mm. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Wrong. (laughs) Uh, Is it chapter 2? Maybe it's first. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong chapter. Chapter 1, verse 16. Peter wants you to know that the Bible doesn't start once upon a time. He wants you to know what we're talking about. We lived it. We saw it. We know it's real. Watch. Ch- uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, my mistake, verse 16. We, the apostles, did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his what? Majesty. No other word for it. No human being can be called majestic except Jesus Christ in the truest sense. Okay. So... He conceals his glory. His face shines like the sun. It's radiating from within his own glory. By the way, John 17, when he prays to the father, Jesus says, my desire is that they be with me and that they behold my glory in its totality. When will that happen? In heaven Uh, and in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So let's keep reading. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Do you see that? Now, in the book of Luke, Luke tells us that they're talking. uh, Well, let's go there. Go to Luke chapter 9, verse 31. These little detours keep you awake, so that makes them a good thing. Luke chapter 9, I got to find it myself, verse 31, Moses and Elijah, two men, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor. I'm in Luke 9, verse 30 and 31. They appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Matthew and Mark don't tell us. Luke tells us the nature of the conversation. What are they talking about? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Do you see that? That word, departure, is literally the word exodus. They talked about his exodus. You say, wait, exodus... Old Testament book, yes. The exodus was the Jews were slaves in Egypt. Do you remember? Their exodus was their being freed and leaving Egypt, which is a picture of sinful mankind, by the way, and going to the promised land. Jesus is about to have an exodus. He's leaving the planet pretty soon, about within a year from when this is happening, the transfiguration what are you saying, Joe? I'm saying this. His exodus is a good thing, but it involves his death, which he also predicted. They're talking with him about that leaving, that exodus, that death. Why Moses? Why Elijah? There's so many people God could have picked. Abraham, David, Aaron, Joseph, One of the other prophets. Why Moses? Why Elijah? The Jews referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. It was another way of saying our Bible, the Old Testament. What you have is the Old Testament, the Torah, the law and the prophets. Who represents the law to a Jew? Moses. Got the law on Mount Sinai, right? Gave the law to the people. Who represents the greatest of the prophets? Elijah. Why else are they unusual? Elijah didn't die. Just went to heaven. He's a picture of people that go up in the rapture. Or for some, the second coming. What about Moses, though? He did die. What's he doing there? Moses died at the end of chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. Anybody know who buried Moses? God himself. Really? Yes. Why? I think, number one, He did not want Moses's grave to become a religious shrine where they sell postcards and you can get some holy water and no one knows where Moses is buried. But in Jude chapter one, verse nine, the archangel Michael has a dispute with the devil over the body of Moses because God had future plans for Moses, Moses and Elijah. I want you to know. Notice, here they are. Somehow, Peter, James, and John know the guy on the left is Moses. Yeah, I think the other guy's Elijah. I think you're right. How do they know? There's no, I've seen his photo on Facebook. Yeah, that's him. They don't have Facebook. Although Moses was the first person to download from the cloud to a tablet. Anyway, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah, Joe? I don't know. I think God supernaturally let them know, I know who that is. That's Moses, and that's Elijah. For a Jew, these are the two superstars of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. What's the testimony? They, the law and the prophets, in human flesh, Moses and Elijah, are talking with their master, Jesus, about his coming exodus. I'll show you why he's their master in a second. Moses and Elijah, most scholars think, appear in Revelation chapter 11 as the two witnesses that come back again to witness to the Jews in Jerusalem. We won't go there now. But I want you to notice, among the other lessons we're going to get to in this thing called the transfiguration, please notice there's life after death. Moses died, and there he is. Well, he was a believer. Yes. Not going to be convicted for a sin? No. Yeah, but he died before Jesus, but he was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look back to the coming of the Messiah. Second thing, it's still Moses. It's still Elijah. What do you mean? I think when you die, you'll recognize your loved ones immediately. They won't have to re enter, I was your mother on the earth. Oh, nice to meet you. You look different here. I think my mother will look different there, but I think I'll know her right away. They know it's them. It's Moses and it's Elijah. For Jews, this is unbelievable confirmation, but we're about to see, and we're going to take our two-minute break right now. When we come back, we'll see how Peter, good old Peter, misunderstands the whole thing. Let's take our two-minute break and go grab some snacks. Introduce yourself to someone you don't know. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. Those of you that are here, find your snack and then find your seat or find your treat and your seat. We're still in Matthew chapter 17, taking our time because this is a big deal. This transfiguration thing is a big deal. By the way, Jesus was transformed and showed them who he really is confirming what Peter said. But do you know who else is supposed to be transformed? You. Romans chapter 12 says, be transformed. He's talking to Christians, not glowing like the sun, I don't hope for that, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the Bible says. Elsewhere, it says we have the mind of Christ. Thought I'd mention the transforming of you and I as well. Um, let's see the fact that Jesus said he's going to suffer and die. And the fact that Elijah and Moses are talking about the coming Exodus as if it's some great thing is supposed to give Peter, James, and John some hope that it's not a tragic thing that he dies for the sins of the world on a bloody cross. It's the most awesome thing that ever happened. So, um, Luke also adds in his gospel that Jesus was praying right before the transfiguration happened. Last thing, I want you to notice that precept upon precept happens in our Christian lives. What do you mean? I mean this. As you and I learn and believe certain things about Christ, and as we repent and as we follow and obey him, listen, more is revealed. I don't think this would have happened unless Peter had said what he said in chapter 16. I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Once we profess our faith and believe it, and Peter believes it, he's given more revelation precept upon precept you build on it you want a download and so do i just give me all the information at once we couldn't handle it and we wouldn't understand it but our faith grows and guess what you never get there this side of heaven we can always keep learning i always say this is a supernatural book read it study it understand it and then start over and read it again you'll see stuff you never saw before and then do it again it's a lifetime thing it's an amazing book okay So Moses and Elijah are there, confirmation for them. Technically, everything has to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So we've got two now who are talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. For Moses and Elijah to show up again, Elijah lived 900 years before this, Moses 14 hundred years before this, for them to show up. If I'm Peter, James, and John, I may not understand fully what's going on, but I'll tell you this, I would say, whoever this Jesus guy we're following is, look who's coming to talk with him. This guy's a big deal. So Peter's about to really misunderstand. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. That's true. If you wish, I will put up three Shelters, that's the word tabernacles or booths. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's pretty good. No, that's not the point of this vision. What's Peter saying? Oh, the light bulb went on. I get it. You're on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah the greatest of the prophets, and the lawgiver of Israel, Moses. But in some ways, the father of Judaism. I get it. So we can build three tabernacles. Goes back to the Feast of Tabernacles. In a literal sense, a tabernacle is nothing more than a tent. But before they had the temple, they worshipped in tents, tabernacles. He's in a way, Peter, saying, I'll build one for Moses, and we can honor him there, and Elijah there, and you there, because I get it—you're on an equal footing with Moses and it—and he's interrupted by God Himself. Watch—one for you, one for Moses, one for—I don't think he gets Elijah. I don't think he gets the word out. Why do you say that, Joe? Look at verse five. While he was still speaking, God's like. Right? He's like, oh, man. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. Them, who them? The whole scene, right? That's the Shekinah cloud of the Old Testament, the presence of God. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son. Notice the word son is singular. Not, these are my boys. These are my sons. You know, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they're equal. No, wrong. This is my son, singular. If he's God's son, he's just like God. Same essence, same nature. This is my son whom I love. Some translations have, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well-pleased Hear him or listen to him, singular. Not Moses, not Elijah. I'm not throwing out the whole Old Testament, don't worry. It's not what he means, because elsewhere in the Bible, New Testament talks about the Old Testament's very important. The Old Testament hints and predicts what happens in the new, the gospel. But he's, God wants them to know, this is my beloved son, singular. So, um, some translations in verse 3 have the word behold, by the way, meaning something really uh, amazing. Okay, so look at verse 4. Peter wants to build three tabernacles. God interrupts, and uh, by the way, Luke 9.33 says when Peter says this, it literally says in Mark and in Luke, Peter didn't really know what he was saying. Isn't that amazing? The writer's admitting he was kind of out of his head there. He was just kind of, you know, when you get nervous, you just say something stupid, and then you go, oh, I'm sorry I said that. Peter likes to just speak and then think about it later, doesn't he? So the Shekinah cloud, God's presence shows up. How many witnesses are there to Jesus's glory? Um, A witness, meaning somebody's speaking it, confirming it is Moses and Elijah. That's two. The third witness is God, the father himself. Do you need more? Is there any greater witness than that? If God says something, we are to believe it. What does God say? Number one, it's my beloved son. You were right, Peter, the son of the living God. I'm well pleased. What does that mean? If Jesus was a sinner, even a little five or ten sins his whole life, could God have been pleased? No. It's an evidence that he is completely perfect, sinless. He lives the perfect life you and I were supposed to live. He dies the horrible death I was supposed to die for my sins, the suffering. So, by the way, the father spoke at Jesus' baptism. Do you remember that? And the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. Whole trinity showed up for that one. In Matthew three seventeen, God says, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. It's almost the same thing. But this time he adds, for a reason, Hear him. Listen <clears throat> to Jesus. Why? Because Peter wants to... <clears throat> incorporate a a special shrine to Elijah and one to Moses. He's saying, just listen to him. Implied in the word hear him or listen is obedience. If we have, God forbid, a fire in this building and somebody, you know, Jeff here, let's just say he's not, but let's say he's a fire captain and there's a fire in the building and the entrances are blocked with fire I would say, folks, don't panic. Jeff is a fire captain. What should we do? Everybody, listen to Jeff. Hear him. What's implied with that? Just listen with your ears and then do what you want? No, what's implied is follow his orders, listen, and do it. Obedience is part of hearing God. We can't say, oh, I listen to God. I just don't do what he says, but I listen. I read the Bible, I don't obey it, but part of listening, hearing Jesus is obeying him. What we said earlier, I will make my will secondary to yours all along. It's all about the death of me and you reigning in my life, God's will over my own. Um, Let's see. By the way, Psalm 2.7 is God talking, and you know what it says about Jesus? You are my son, Old Testament. Isaiah 42.1, the father says, The Son is the one in whom his soul delights or is well-pleased. He said all this before, but he says it again for Peter, James, and John. Um, Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, There's one coming, and him you shall hear or listen to. All of this goes back to the Old Testament. If God calls Jesus, my Son and he is, it is unbelievably gracious that he calls you his daughter or his son as well. It's an amazing thing. Family. Um, what's, what's implied in all this? It confirms, well, well, let's wait for that. Let's read on, shall we? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Zoom, anybody asleep? No, looks like everybody's awake. Amazing. Um, Okay. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. I should have brought a microphone here and hooked up the PA and with a bunch of reverb, this is, and, you know, blown your ears off a little bit because I think the voice did it. I want you to notice that up to this point, Jesus has been glowing Jesus' um, clothes are glowing. I'm sorry, uh, Moses and Elijah have showed up. But watch the reaction, which hasn't happened until God speaks. Look at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they said, hey, God, how are you doing, man? No. They fell face down on the ground, terrified terrified it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god they probably sense their own sin his unbelievable greatness and power now they're on the ground not at the shining of jesus clothes not on moses and elijah hey i'll build the tabernacle this is my they're on the ground they're terrified i think it's a comical scene i intend to watch this dvd when i get to heaven but You can come over to my house and watch it. I'll have the little shack on the outside of town, but at least I'll be there. Verse seven. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Fear not. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, by the way, this is the most important thing. It's all important. Verse eight is the most important thing. When they looked up, They saw no one except Jesus. No Moses, no Elijah, no more cloud, just Jesus. If your salvation and mine is Jesus plus, you're wrong. And so am I. Jesus is the all-sufficient one. In him is the full power and glory Of God. But are you saying it's a little scary? Yes. But in Peter's statement, it was all glory, wasn't it? It was, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus mentioned shortly after that in the chapter before this, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. Remember all that? Suffering. They've now seen confirmation that this is true. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter one with me. So from uh, Matthew, take a right, go all the way toward the back. And if you see the book of James, take a left. Hebrews is right before James. Hebrews chapter one. (laughs) Hebrews chapter one. Backstory very quickly. What is Hebrews? It's the only book of the New Testament Believe it or not, we're not sure who wrote it. Don't let that worry you. The early Christians that really knew what books are being studied and believed, they were sure Hebrews was in. We don't know who wrote it. Hebrews, listen, is a book written to Hebrews. What's a Hebrew? Jews. Hebrews is a book written to Hebrews, clearly written by a hebrew some jewish person to let them know stop being hebrews because jesus the whole point of the hebrews is the word better jesus is better than the old testament than moses he's better than angels he's better than elijah he's better than all the prophets he's better than abraham isaac jacob jesus is better to start his book Whoever wrote Hebrews says, verse one, Hebrews one, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe creator. Well, who is this sun? Verse 3. The sun is the radiance. They just saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The radiance of God's glory. And I'm going to get it wrong just to make a point. The radiance of God's glory and the approximate representation of his being. Is that what it says? It says the exact representation of God's being. Um sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, that's on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior or better to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Um, look at verse eight. He's going to quote the Old Testament. But about the son, he says, your throne, O oh God. Who says that? God the Father speaks to God the Son in the Old Testament and says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Um, We could go on. My point is, Jesus is it, folks. Jesus is the exact representation of God, the, the majesty of God himself. Okay, so go back to Matthew 17. We get it. It was an awesome scene. They're so terrified. They're face down on the ground in verse six. Jesus has that kind of power and glory and majesty. Wow. If that's all he has, it's not as great as what you're about to see. Because in addition to that kind of power, he also happens to be gentle, tender, compassionate, loving caring. Verse seven, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, don't be afraid. Isn't that beautiful? The God that is all powerful also happens to be a very gentle, beautiful being. You see both? If your God is the God of love and he's just a gentle guy, period, you're missing the judgment, the wrath, and the power. On the other hand, if your God is that scary, powerful guy, and you're missing the love and the tenderness, you don't have a full-orbed picture. Jesus, listen, reveals the Father, and he's both. It's beautiful. He touches them, says, get up, don't be afraid. By the way, that goes back to Matthew, uh, sorry, Daniel 8, where Daniel gets a vision so mind-blowing, he's on the ground, And an angel touches him, touches him and says, get up, don't be afraid. Beautiful. But verse eight is the key. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus, not Muhammad, not Allah, not Confucius, not Buddha, not Jim Jones, not Jimmy Swaggart, not Abraham, not the Virgin Mary, not the Pope, Not the Dalai Lama, just Jesus. That whole scene was to show them this guy that looks like just your average Jewish guy is God in human flesh, fully God, fully man, Messiah. They only saw Jesus. Don't add anything to the gospel or to Jesus except what's in the word. The cloud's gone. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. Even God the Father's gone. Focus on and hear Jesus. He's the only hope of the world, the only judge of the world, the only atonement for sin. Buddha never died for sins. Neither did Muhammad. So I thought of this question. Why doesn't Peter revise his statement? Remember, I think if you want, I'll build three tabernacles. Moses, Elijah, you. I get it. You're equal, not equal, says God. Eh, wrong, and now there's just Jesus. Why doesn't Jesus, why doesn't Peter say? How about if I build one tabernacle, just for you? What's a tabernacle? It's a little mini temple. Why not? Because Jesus is the temple. A person, not a building. And our bodies, First Corinthians, are also temples of the Holy Spirit where God lives inside of us. What do you mean Jesus is the temple? Okay, what's a temple? It was a place they would go, listen, to worship. We go to Jesus to worship. It's a place you would go to pray. We pray in the name of Jesus. It's a place you would go to sacrifice that's all done. But the one sacrifice was done by the, our high priest, which is Jesus. And he happens to also be the sacrifice himself. Do you see what I mean? He's everything. You're my first, my last, my everything. There's a song. I won't sing it for you. Um, so, um, no, there's no need to build the tabernacle. So, verse From this mountaintop experience, they start walking down. I can imagine the conversation. Only a little bit of it is recorded here, but they had a long walk down. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until a son of man has been raised from the dead. There it is again. It happens so many times, raised from the dead. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to persecute me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to rise from the dead. You would think the disciples are going, well, we're here. He's going to die any day, and he's going to rise from the dead three days later. They are shocked when it happens. So shocked, Peter denies Christ. They all scatter, right? They didn't hear him, right? So they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, and he says, don't tell anybody. Is that odd? I would want to tell everybody. You're not going to believe what I saw. Why not? Because if people hear this, they're going to want to make him king by force. They're going to misunderstand and think this is it. He's here for good. No, no. He has to die first. Then Matthew 28, after the death and resurrection, do you know what Jesus says? Go into all the world and shout it. Tell everybody. Not yet. Not yet. My time has not yet come. It's still a little less than a year before the cross. Don't tell anybody. How hard would that be to get back in with, you know, all the other guys, right? Andrew and Thomas. How was it up there? Good. <laughs> What'd you guys do? Just walked and he talked with us. And you look funny. Nothing. But I bet. Knowing human nature, coming down the mountain. What about the other nine? Put yourself in their shoes. You're Thaddeus, or you're Bartholomew, or you're, you know, whoever. Little James. How come they got to go and not us? You think there was a little jealousy, a little maybe? You think Peter, James, and John are dying to tell them, guess what we saw? We're the inner circle. Maybe they needed it more. It's possible that what we're about to read from the mountaintop down to the valley and the gross stuff that goes on on sinful earth, it's possible that the disciples could not cast out this demon because they had a little bit of an attitude. Because the other three went up with him and we have to stay down here. It's possible they got a little. Full of themselves. I'll show you. But first, verse 10, they have one question. They know their Old Testament. They know the book of Malachi, which says that Elijah is going to come before the, listen to the wording, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What kind of a day? Great and terrible seems like a contradiction. How was your day? It was great. How was your day? Terrible. You wouldn't say I had a great and terrible day. I mean, I guess you could if you, you know, won the lottery and wrecked your car or something. I don't know. My point is they know that Elijah is supposed to come first before the Messiah. Wait a minute. If you're the Messiah, they're going to ask, doesn't Elijah come first? We just saw Elijah come after you showed up. Isn't this out of order? Watch. Disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? That's the key word timing. He's supposed to come first. He came after you showed up. You've already done healing for a few years and taught. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, verse 12. And they, unbelievers, the Jews, did not acknowledge or recognize him but they've done to him everything they wished. He's talking about John the Baptist, who Jesus says elsewhere came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah because they asked him in John 1 and he says, no, I'm not Elijah. But he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's very similar to Elijah. Why do they say that? He says, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, he's already come and they didn't, didn't recognize him. They've done to him everything they wished. They killed him. John the Baptist, they beheaded him. He did come first. He was the forerunner that announced my coming. John the Baptist's ministry precedes Jesus's by several months. John baptizes Jesus. Remember? In the same way, I'm still in verse 12, The son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Wait. In the same way. You mean John the Baptist? Well, they cut his, they killed him. He's telling him again. How many times has this been? In the same way. What did they do to John? They killed him. In the same way, the son of man, I am going to suffer at their hands. Same way. Verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. That's what they want to know. They now understand, you're it. God spoke. We heard it. When they came to the crowd, verse 14, from the mountaintop to the city dump, spiritually speaking, when they came to the, to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your your disciples, but they could not heal him. Did you hear that? Disciples, plural. The idea is I brought him to the nine other guys, Thomas, Andrew, Bartholomew, Judas, and they all said, give me, let me have a crack at it. Now in chapter 10 of the book of Matthew, do you remember? He sent them out on the first journey, missionary journey. The the 12 of them in groups of two, you two go together, you two go together, and he gave them the ability, listen, to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And they come back and report, we couldn't believe we could do it, right? They had the power given to them by Jesus through his spirit. Maybe it went to their heads. Maybe there are strata of powers in the heavens that are satanic, demons, principalities, and powers. There's a, there's a hierarchy there, and maybe this particular demon is too much for them. Maybe they're trying to do it in the name of me, Bartholomew, leave, and the demon laughs at him, and the guy goes, you, had, you go ahead and try, Andrew, I'm done here. Philip, you're next, and they all try, and the man's going, what's going on? What's the lesson here? God's people, we do our best. We will, from time to time, fail, won't we? Do not follow any human teacher on TV, on the radio, even your pastor. Listen, learn, check it out with the word of God. You are to follow and hear who ultimately? Jesus. Hear him. So, We learn about this poor kid and the father from the other Gospels more than Matthew. Matthew just wants to get to the punchline, if you will. Matthew, um, by the way, when Moses came down from the mountain, remember that mountaintop experience? What happened? He sees Israel's apostasy. I was gone, and you guys are worshiping a calf made of gold? Are you kidding me? Remember Absolute lack of faith. Jesus is about to say that as well. Um, we didn't. We already read that. Okay. Um, they go from being with God and the Shekinah glory cloud and Moses and Elijah and Jesus glowing to this, back to earth. So, um, English Revised Version has the description of the boy as epileptic, which is not a correct translation. You may be surprised to learn the correct translation is the word, wait for it, lunatic. Luna is, means, anybody speak Spanish here? Luna means moon, right? Um, They believed incorrectly that people that were mentally ill or challenged in any way, the moon has something to do with it full moon, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So the word lunatic became um, a metaphor or another, a synonym for someone that is deranged mentally. Is this kid demon possessed? Yes. Is he also mentally messed up? Probably from the demon, one the cause of the other. Yes. But it's way worse than that. And Matthew doesn't tell you what the other gospels tell you. Um, He's moonstruck, Delanizathai in Greek. Okay. Um, By the way, is there such a thing as, because there's Christians that believe there isn't, is there such a thing as literal mental illness? Answer, yes. There's Christians that believe any mental problem, that's a demon, Everything's a demon. I have the, you have the demon of coughing. She's got the demon of ankle pain. And somebody's got the demon of sleepless nights. It's not all demon possession. Sometimes, is there an intersection? There is. There is here. Not always. So if your sister in law mentally is partly cloudy, as we say in my family, don't say, oh, she's got a demon. Not necessarily. There's a real thing. Mental illness is a real thing. Okay. So we learn from Mark 9 that the boy, the demon made the boy, listen, deaf and dumb as well. Uh, He also is having frequent falls into the water and into the fire. His life is in danger. So he's got seizures. He's deaf. He's dumb. He's falling into the fire. He's falling into water. The demon just thrashes him and controls him. When Jesus is about to cast out the demon, he's going to put on a show and make the boy fall down on the ground and foam at the mouth. Okay, go back to chapter 17. Uh, Notice that he brought him to the disciples. They could not heal him. We're not told what reason. Verse 17 Jesus' reaction, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Well, it's an insurmountable problem. Bring the boy here to me. Well, God, in my life, I have this problem over here and I've got this problem over here. And it's it, there's no solution. Jesus says, Joe, bring the problem to me. And once you do, leave it there with me and let me handle it. You know what we do? I, I picture my need, my prayer request as a box, and I bring it to Jesus' Jesus's feet on a throne. And I try to leave it there and ask him, And you know what I do when I worry? I go pick it up and take it back again. Lack of faith. Okay. Bring the boy here to me. That's the real solution. Um, So, like I said, Mark says, as soon as he says, bring the boy here to me, the demon puts on a real show. Throws the boy to the ground. He's foaming at the mouth and what have you. Okay, we're still reading. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Instantly, no big fight, no fancy incantation. He rebuked the demon. Elsewhere, he says, come out of him. That's all. And the demons have to obey. Remember that The apostles, if they're able to do this, are able to do this in his power. But his power is innate. It's within him. He was the one shining that light. Now he still looks like a dude again, a human, with hair and a beard and a cloak and maybe a little dirt on his arm from mountain climbing. But inside, that light we saw earlier is still shining. We just can't see it with human eyes. The demon, which is a spirit being, a fallen angel, could totally see it. They know who he is. So when he says, get out, the demon splits immediately. Um, Before we move on, I got to tell you that um, in the gospel of Luke, when the demon comes out, and by the way, Luke presents the story that there's not just the nine disciples, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the father, and the boy. There's a huge crowd there. It's a big scene. Oh, here comes Jesus. When Jesus says, get out, And the guy leaves. I just noticed we're two minutes late. I better shut up and quit. When Jesus says, get out, and the demon splits, Luke writes, all were astonished. We're going to bring it full circle. Listen, all were astonished at the majesty of God. What's your point? Peter, James, and John on the mountain were astonished at the majesty of God. It's not just light and power and extreme scariness. It's also tenderness. It's also compassion to heal. It's also complete power over everything, including the strongest demon there could possibly be. More on this next week. Moron, that's the teacher's name. Moron, this next week, we're going to close with prayer now. Um, Let's pray, shall we? Um, Father, thank you for this glimpse of this transfiguration. What an amazing, amazing thing. The next time we have a crisis or a temptation or a need, would you remind us of this passage, God, that the person we're praying to is you, the Almighty God, in the name of your Son, and you call us daughters and sons, you care in the same tender way, you still and your son still has that unbelievable, limitless power. May we pray with that in mind, God, and leave things in your hands. Lastly, would you give us ears to hear him and obey? We pray that you would change our lives this week, God for your glory. Thank you for this time, Father. We love you. Bless each one here and use us for your glory. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. And hopefully we'll see you next week. Those of you on Zoom, God bless. Thank you for being here. We'll see you soon.